on the show today. Facebook announces it is working on a pair of smart glasses. Google gives the first look at its own nutrition labels for privacy. A Twitter report shows that a huge majority of its users haven't enabled a basic privacy feature. Our Scam of the Day discusses a way that you could be tracked when you sit down for a meal in a restaurant. And today's tip gives you eight ways to keep your child's educational data private. All of that and more is coming up on the August 2nd, 2021 edition of Cybersecurity Made Personal. Helping you stay safe in a connected world. This is Cybersecurity Made Personal. Hello and welcome to the Cybersecurity Made Personal Podcast, the safest podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Jim Herman. I have five stories on the news beat for you today. We begin with news from Facebook, where Mark Zuckerberg announced on the company's latest earnings call that Facebook's next hardware product would be a pair of smart glasses produced in conjunction with Ray-Ban. Zuckerberg stated that, quote, the glasses have their own iconic form factor and they let you do some pretty neat things, unquote. Although the Facebook CEO did not elaborate on what those neat things were, the company had previously stated that they would not have an integrated display. Facebook says these glasses will not be augmented reality devices, but they are one step in the direction of a full augmented reality system. Facebook has long expressed interest in virtual and augmented reality, so these glasses seem to be the next step in that direction. If the idea of glasses with additional features seems familiar, it's because Facebook is not the first company to develop this type of device. Google announced Google Glass in 2013 to a mixed reception. However, the Google product has not been widely used by the public, and it's questionable whether Facebook's glasses will receive a better reception. And while we're speaking of Google, the Mountain View company has begun releasing samples of what its new Play Store privacy labels will look like. Last December, Apple began requiring apps to display a standard label showing how data in the app would be collected and used. Any new app was required to provide this data upon application, and any existing app had to provide this data before an update would be approved. This feature was termed the Nutrition Label for Privacy, named after the standard format nutrition labels required on most food products. As expected, Google later announced this past May that it would begin adding a similar feature to the Play Store early next year. The feature will provide a summary of the app's privacy practices and will allow the user to tap on any individual element for more information. 
Google says developers can submit information starting in October of this year, and the feature is expected to roll out in early 2022. From Facebook to Google and now to Twitter, where Twitter's latest transparency report shows that the majority of the social site's users have ignored a basic security feature. The Twitter report shows that a meager 2.3% of users have enabled two-factor authentication on their Twitter account. Two-factor authentication, or TFA, requires you to use a second form of identification before you're allowed to sign in. Twitter offers multiple TFA methods, including text message, authenticator app, or a hardware token. Almost 80% of those who enabled TFA had enabled text message form, although some of those did have multiple methods set up. While security experts would be quick to point out that there is an easy way to bypass text message authentication, the 1.8% of users that are using that are still better off than the over 97% of users without any form of TFA enabled. So if you haven't enabled TFA on your Twitter account yet, make plans to do it soon. Maybe just as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. And moving to cell phone news, in a very odd story that has made headlines this week, one woman has gone public with a difficulty she has had in keeping her own phone number. Tashai Carter left Freedom Mobile for a new provider last August and ported her number to a new provider. However, she says that on three separate occasions, Freedom Mobile has given that number to a new customer. While Carter has not lost access to her own number, she has received text messages and phone calls from strangers looking for someone else. She has also had to field phone calls from the customers themselves wanting to know why she had taken over their number. Shaw Communications, which owns Freedom Mobile, says that the situation is the result of human error and that they are working to ensure this doesn't happen again. However, this isn't the first instance of this occurring, and the company gave a similar response when it happened to a different customer in 2019. And while we reported on the potential for cybersecurity incidents at the Tokyo Olympics last week, an Olympic-level cybersecurity blunder occurred through a hot mic moment with one announcer. During the Italian broadcast of a volleyball game, an announcer was heard asking for the password to the computer in the announcer's booth. It turned out the password was booth period 03, apparently named after the number of the broadcast booth. The announcer then complained about the inclusion of the period to make it more difficult, saying, even the dot to make it more difficult, as if it was NASA's computer. But unfortunately for him and the Olympics, how secure is my password.net? says that the password could be cracked by an attacker in just 12 hours. Hopefully, NASA and that broadcaster are using a more complicated password than that. And now we move on to our scam of the day. 
Today's scam isn't a scam in the true sense of the word. However, it is a way that you're being tracked without your knowledge, and it provides a warning for business owners as they implement new technology in their company. Last week, a New York Times report discussed the rise of digital menus, often accessed through the use of QR codes at the table. These menus became popular as restaurants reopened during the pandemic, and it seems unlikely that they're going to go away anytime soon. Instead of needing to spend money to print new menus, a restaurant can now make a change to a digital website instead. There are also services that allow people to place their order without needing to interact with a waiter or waitress. Scan the QR code, place your order, and pay all right on your phone, and your meal will be delivered as soon as it's ready. It's basically like DoorDash or Uber Eats just brought to the in-restaurant dining experience. However, the spread of QR codes in restaurants and other businesses has also enabled more tracking. Open the menu on your phone, and the restaurant or online service can gather information about your device. Revisit that restaurant or another one that's using the same menu service, and the service will know where you've been and, if you ordered through the app, what you ate. This can allow restaurants to target you with special offers on the food that you've bought previously when you re-enter the restaurant. It could also suggest foods at restaurants you've never even visited based on what you've ordered at other restaurants. This makes sitting down for a nice meal just the latest way that you're being tracked. And the truth is that most of these restaurants probably never considered the privacy factor for their customers. They had a need to revamp their operations in order to reopen, and they found a service that seemed to meet their needs. So this is a warning for both customers and business owners. As a customer, it may be best to stick with the traditional paper menu whenever you can. And if you're a business owner, make sure that any new service you implement for your business will protect the privacy of your customers. If you find a scam that you think we'd like to talk about on the show, you can send it to us at scam at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com. And now it's time for the Cybersecurity Pop Quiz. Each week, we ask you a question in the field of online security or privacy, and it's your job to figure out the right answer. Today's question is a multiple choice question. The question is, under US federal law, at what age can children consent to a privacy policy without the need for parent or guardian approval? A, 12, B, 13, C, 15, D, 18, or E, 21. The answer will be revealed in next week's episode. But if you want to know it right away, you can go to cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash popquiz to submit your guess and find out if you're right. Plus, if you submit your guess on the website, regardless of whether you're right or wrong, 
you'll be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card when we conclude Season 3 in August. But your guest must be submitted before the next episode airs, next Monday, August 9th. For official giveaway rules, visit CybersecurityMadePersonal.com slash quiz rules. Last week's question was, if you clear cookies in your browser, websites will no longer be able to track you. True or false? The correct answer is false. While cookies are one way to track you, they are far from the only way. For example, a website can connect everything you're doing with your identity if you're signed in on the site. And even if you say you'll just sign in and sign back out when you need to, the site could still add those cookies back to track you after you've signed out. Plus, sites have used other ways to tie your activity back to you. In the days of Flash, Adobe's Flash Player was exploited to create a cookie that was much more difficult to clear. And some phones were using what were termed super cookies in order to track people. This was a cookie built into the operating system itself, which was impossible to clear until it was discovered. So while clearing cookies will remove some tracking information, there's still going to be ways to track you again or even restore the identifiers that point to you. That doesn't mean you shouldn't clear the cookies in your browser from time to time, but don't rely on that as the only method of protecting your privacy. Your child's privacy is probably just as important, or maybe even more important to you, than your own privacy. But as more and more of the educational system has moved online, it's now becoming a challenge just to figure out where your child's data is being stored, much less what data is actually being saved. We'll discuss eight steps you can take to protect the privacy of your child's educational data when we come back from this short break. Hi, it's Jim. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could follow us in your favorite podcast player. That will ensure you never miss an episode. And while you're there, we'd also appreciate it if you could rate the show and give us a review. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. And finally, the best review that someone can give us is to tell their friends about the show. Invite them to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or send them to our website, cybersecuritymadepersonal.com, where they can find links to the show in all the major podcast players. Thanks for your support, and now, back to the show. I grew up at the beginning of the technology era. I remember in elementary school, when attendance was recorded on a slip of paper that was sent to the office every day, and teachers wrote their grades in a physical gradebook and calculated them with a calculator at the end of each quarter. As I progressed from kindergarten up through the 12th grade, I saw numerous technological changes come to the school. 
I saw school computer labs go from five or six computers that we had to share each period to having more computers in the lab than we had students in the class. And those weren't even the only computers in the school. Every teacher had a computer on their desk for entering attendance and grades, and some classrooms, such as the foreign language classrooms, even had their own computer labs right inside the class. Then we came to 2020, and suddenly education moved entirely on the computer. Zoom, Teams, Skype, or some other video conferencing option became the classroom, and all schoolwork was submitted through email or some other online portal. More and more of your child's educational data was moving online even before the pandemic, which meant that making sure your child's privacy was being protected was already important. And regardless of whether your child is now attending school in person or in front of a computer, protecting your child's privacy is still important. So what can you do to make sure that your child's privacy is protected? Here are eight things that you can do. First, examine the security of the sites your child is using. A site could have the strongest privacy practices, but it will do your child absolutely no good if the security is poor so that anyone can pull data out of the system. So check on a few basic things for every site or app that your child is asked to use. 1. Make sure the site uses encryption. That's typically identified by the HTTPS at the beginning of the address or the lock icon in your browser. Encryption prevents the data from being monitored while it's in transit. And honestly, if a website handling educational data hasn't taken the step to add security to its site, then it's not one that I would trust with any data. 2. Try to set up an account for yourself on the site. If you can set up an account, then anyone else can set up an account. Once you have an account, see if you can contact your child's account through the service. Once again, if you're able to message your child, then anyone else is going to be able to do the same thing. Hopefully, the service is locked down so that only people from within your school can message your child. And while we're on that subject, three, check out the messaging and account options that are available. Is your child able to message anyone on the service or only the teacher and possibly classmates? Does the service ask or require your child to provide personal data as part of their account? Make sure that your child only provides the minimum amount of information requested. Four, Try visiting your child's profile page from another computer, web browser, or at least an incognito window. As long as your child isn't logged in, you can see what information about your child is available to the public. If the profile information is available to you when you're not signed in, it's probably available to anyone else who wants to find it. And five, Check on what happens when you say you forgot your password. If the site emails your child's password to you, that's a very bad thing. Good security practices dictate that the site shouldn't be able to email the password to you 
because it should have no way to know what your child's password even is. So once you've evaluated the security of each service, the second step is to examine the privacy policy. Last episode, we covered how to evaluate a privacy policy to determine if it's a good deal for you. Use the steps we covered in that episode to check the policy and see if there's anything that you should be concerned about. Third, ask to see your child's data. Under federal law, you have a right to see all of your child's educational records within 45 days of your request. Even for third-party services, the school is still obligated to make arrangements for you to view the data if it can't give you access to it all by itself. Make sure that you keep an eye out for all of the services and apps your child is using as a part of their education. And make sure that all of them are covered when you receive the information. If you know your child has used a particular service, but there's no data from that service, then ask why no information has been provided to you. Fourth, speak to the school or to the services directly about opting out of data collection. Sites may ask for information, but not actually require most of it. If a website offers the ability to opt out of data collection, take advantage of it. Additionally, some services may anonymize data and submit it to others for study and review. Not all of this analysis and study is bad. Some can be very useful to recognize trends or biases. But not all data can be completely anonymized. Enough data points could potentially allow someone to reconnect one anonymous record back to your child. And while that may be unlikely, it could still be possible. So if a site participates in anonymous data sharing, check to see if you can opt out of this as well. Fifth, pay attention to the forms you are signing when you register your child for school. Beyond the standard registration paperwork, you may also be asked to grant approval for data use agreements for some of the services the school plans to use. Don't just rush through the paperwork, no matter how much the school may want you to. Make sure you understand the purpose of every paper you are signing and ask questions if you notice anything that concerns you. Sixth, ask your school for their policies in evaluating potential software options. The secretary or assistant you first speak to at the school probably isn't going to be able to answer this question, but they should be able to direct you to someone in an IT department or the administrative offices who can answer this question for you. If the school won't tell you its policies or doesn't have a set of standards it uses to evaluate software, then you should be concerned. Seventh, Ask if you can see the school's contracts with third-party services that may collect data on your child. Ultimately, the contracts are the best way to see what type of data collection and sharing is being done. A company may have standard policies for individual users posted on the site, but there could be contract provisions dictating that that website won't engage in certain practices as part of its contract with the school. 
Custom policies are not uncommon, both in education and business. So see exactly what types of data sharing the school agreed to on behalf of you and your child. And finally, eighth, pay attention to the agenda and minutes of the school board meetings. If the school district is planning to switch to or begin using a new service provider, it's going to be brought up before the school board. That will allow you at least a little time to review the service's terms and conditions and determine if you find anything of concern. And if you do find something concerning, attend the meeting and speak out against it. You may also want to reach out to fellow parents or even the PTA or other parent groups in your school. They may be able to get more people to attend the meeting and express concerns as well. Also, if school board meetings are streamed online or broadcast on public access television, you may want to watch, either live or on demand. And if your school district doesn't offer any sort of streaming or broadcast of their meetings, ask why. And if all else fails, find a group of parents with similar privacy-minded views and rotate attending the meetings in person. Have the person attending take notes of anything involving new technology and report back to everyone in the group. That way, everyone can stay up to date on what the school board is doing, but no one has to take the time to attend every meeting. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back again next Monday, where our tip will discuss why you should consider using a VPN and how you get one set up. So until next time, stay safe. Thanks again for joining us for the Cybersecurity Made Personal podcast. Check out the show notes page linked in the description for links to the articles mentioned, more information about today's tip, and a transcription of this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would consider visiting our welcome page at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash welcome. There, you can find more information about the show and links to some of our most popular episodes. Cybersecurity Made Personal is provided for educational purposes only. Don't take any action on your computer unless you fully understand what you are doing and the possible consequences. Visit cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash disclaimer for more information. Cybersecurity Made Personal is a production of Personal Cybersecurity, LLC. I'm Jim Herman. Thanks for listening and stay safe.